Um, any of you here fans of uh, what I like to call the BDS? This is not um, something to do with your gut health. Um, but uh, the bold declarative statements, anyone, the BDS, uh, I, I love them. I use them daily. Things that you're saying, this is the best or the worst. Um, sometimes for me, they're, they're personal. Um, are you like me within a, you know, sometimes less than a 24-hour period, you could be having the best day and also the worst day ever? Um, yes, I, I can be a bit emotionally on the swing sometimes. Um, you know, one I like to say a lot, Oak Cliff, uh, by far the best neighborhood in Dallas. Come on, anyone. You, 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 I know you've said that. Um, here's a bold declarative statement uh, I like to make. Dallas has the worst burritos I've ever had in my life. And it really frustrates me um, being someone who grew up enjoying just some of the best burritos of San Francisco. Um, but also Dallas has some of the best tacos I've ever had. So, okay, amen, anyone? Although I, I read a bold declarative statement yesterday, um, something that ranked Somehow, I, I was too upset to actually read the article. I just read the headline. Um, it ranked the 20, I think maybe the largest cities in Dallas, uh, ranked them for their tacos, and they ranked Dallas last. Okay, I was a little, uh, yeah, right? I, I see some faces. I was a little surprised that for, the, uh, uh, just, just, I don't know, Trompo, you got LCI down the street. Give us some love, okay? Maybe they haven't been to Oak Cliff. Um, I'm going to make a bold declarative statement today. This might be the most important sermon that I've preached at Good Shepherd Oak Cliff. Um, I know we've only been at this regularly for 10 months, um, but I think I can say this safely because what we're going to do today is look at the summary uh, of the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. Um, and, and I know saying something like that is, like, is really setting you up for disappointment. I think that's part of the reason I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet is because I've had everybody tell me what an amazing movie this is. And I'm like, I'm going to be disappointed. Um, but is it today that's like everything's $4 or something? So maybe today, is it National Cinema Day? Is that what you told me season? Yeah. Um, so today, that bold declarative statement, we'll see. Hopefully you're not disappointed. For those of you who are unsure about Christianity or you are um, fairly new to this, uh, today I think would be a really helpful um, message, hopefully, because you could say this is a summary of the, the Christian teaching. Uh, for many of us, myself included, if you've grown up in and around the church, uh, I, I think, frankly, what I grew up with was a smaller version uh, of what Jesus actually taught. Not that the things that I grew up hearing were uh, not true, but it was just a part of the, the broader message of Jesus. Uh, what I grew up hearing, you might call the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die right? That's just it. Give me, the, give me the bare minimum to get in, right? Um, I hope today in what we're going to explore that you will see that um, the Christian life is so much broader than that. So we're continuing in Mark's gospel. Uh, we've got some Bibles on the table in the back there. Uh, and if you want to open with me, what I read from here is the NIV, the New International Version. Um, if you have something different, you might see some different words there. Uh, but that's what we have at the table in the back. And if you don't have a Bible and you want that, it would be our joy to have you take that home with you. So I'm going to read. We're still in Mark chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at verses 14 through 20 today. Uh, and here, here's my—I'll give you kind of maybe the overview. My, my suggestion for, for what we take away today is that we are going to find in these verses the uniqueness of Christianity— or, or to put it another way, the difference between the gospel and religion. 
Uh, and I hope that you see that it's maybe not just between the gospel and religion, but it's really the difference between gospel, the gospel and, and every other worldview. So let me read our text, um, finish with the, the bold declarative statements. Uh, let me get into our text. I'm going to start in verse 14 and 15. So Mark chapter 1. After John was put in pre- prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So let me, let me pause there. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. This passage, it helps us answer three questions, okay? If you're a note taker, three questions. Uh, and I think these questions, they help demonstrate how the gospel is fundamentally different than, than any other religion. Um, so the two of them are a what question and one of them is a how question, okay? So what is the gospel? What is the kingdom? And how do we respond to the king? Okay, what is the gospel? What is the kingdom? And how do we respond to its king? Uh, so what is the gospel? Some of this is going to be a little bit of a recap. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the start of this series. We talked quite a bit about this. Um, and, and if you are, are wondering in that text, you actually didn't see the word gospel appear, at least in the NIV. Um, but, but it's in there. Because the translation that we, I just read from, it, it translates this word good news instead of gospel, okay? But these translations are um, interchangeable. So we'll, we'll do a quick review. If you uh, remember this Greek word, euangelion, does anybody remember that from a few weeks ago? Euangelion, which can be translated gospel or good news. Um, and, and if you remember, this is, literally means it's news that brings joy. And, and I can't overstate the importance of this. I actually heard um, Tim Keller say this. I've been listening to a lot of uh, uh, Timothy Keller sermons lately since um, he went to be with Jesus. But if you know the late uh, Presbyterian pastor that was in New York City for a long time, and I heard him say this that I thought was interesting. He said to his congregation, this is maybe like 2016, I think. And he said, I've been with you for 25 years. But if I just had 2.5 minutes, this is what I would tell you. That gospel, the word gospel, it isn't a Christian word. It is a word that had a lot of meaning. It had a lot of significance outside the church. And if you would remember, it is a word that was used to announce an event of great historical significance. So if you remember, we looked back at the, we saw there was an inscription when uh, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor when Jesus was born. And there was the inscription that said, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Right? It was a way of saying, good news. Something has happened. The emperor is born. Rejoice. This changes everything for the whole nation or the whole empire. And think about the significance of this. This is what Keller is saying. Christianity is claiming that with what happened with Jesus, it, it is the same word, good news, that there is a message of good news for the whole world. And we find here, kind of at its heart, this is the main difference between Christianity and and every other worldview and religion. Because at the heart of Christianity is news. And at the heart of other religions, you might summarize it in the word advice. At the heart of Christianity is news, right? It is rooted in this historic event, something that happened in time and space, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Religions, on the other hand, offer some sort of guidance, some path, some, some process, some way to achieve, whether it's nirvana or, or to enter into paradise. And in the religious approach, there is yet work to be done. 
In the Christian approach, it says the work has already been done. And I heard this analogy, um, it's from this great Welsh pastor from the early 1900s, um, the guy who has like five first names, his name is Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's just, uh, um, one, two, three. yeah, that's, that's a lot of first names. And I hope this is helpful for you. So um, Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, religions give advice and advice is akin to counsel. Um, he says it is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet, but you could do something about it. There's something can change. In, in, contra, in contrary to this, the gospel is news. It is not advice. It is news about something that has been done, and you cannot alter that. But what is left to do is how do you respond to that? What, what do you think about? What, what, what behavior, what, what thoughts, what emotions kind of come up? How do you respond to that event in history? Um, and Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, imagine a king in an ancient kingdom and he's sending his army to meet this invading force. This invading force is coming into the territory, and so the king sends his army. If the king's army, if, if the king is able to defeat that invading force, what he does then is he sends messengers back through his empire. And he says, behold, good news. We won, right? These are what heralds were. These are what, basically, these were evangelists. They were good newsers. They would go and proclaim the, the victory of that king. They would say, the king has won. You don't have to fear this army coming in. You don't have to fear the enslavement or the, the violence that, that might have been a threat. So now live your lives in the peace that the king has won for you. But what happens if the king does not win? What does he do? Well, he sends back advisors, and specifically military advisors. And they come with a message that says, prepare, the enemy has broken through our lines, get ready for the fight. Send, we want cavalry over here, we want the archers to be over there, here's the plan of attack, now fight for your lives. And Lloyd-Jones says that every other religion sends advisors. If you want salvation, here's the plan. You must work for this. You must fight for this. Here is the path to success. And the response, action, right? Action driven by this sense of urgency. But different than that is Christianity. In Christianity, we do not send advisors, but we send messengers with good news. We don't send military advisors. We send heralds that say, good news, the king has won. And what is our response? Well, well it, it should be this overwhelming joy, this, this gratitude, this, this sense of peace that, that we see. The battle has been won for us. And let me ask you, do you think, based on that, does Christianity breed laziness? I think absolutely not, because think about how you would respond to that king. You would be incredibly loyal to this king. Look at what he has done for you. And in response, you would joyfully serve him, not out of fear, but out of love. So Christianity is a message of good news. Now, verse 15, let's be a bit more specific. What was this message of good news that Jesus proclaimed? 15 says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So it says, this is the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom has come near. So that's the second question. Uh, we said, what is the gospel of the good news? And now, what is the kingdom? Uh, you're not alone in thinking this phrase might be a little confusing. The, the kingdom of God, what is this talking about? And, and what is come near? Near like 
you know, El Encanto is near, the popsicles down the street, or, or something else. And some translations, um, the ESV is one of them that says, the kingdom is at hand. I think that's even more confusing, right? Uh, let me attempt some definitions here that I think would be helpful. So again, if you're a note taker, um, write this down. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of God. The kingdom is present wherever the will of God is being carried out. So the kingdom has less to do with with territory and more to do with authority. Think about the, the prayer we just prayed together, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see how that is almost synonymous. The God's kingdom is synonymous with, with the will of God being carried out. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he defines the kingdom like this. He says, the kingdom of God is God reigning. It is present wherever what God wants done is done. It is the range of God's effective will. It is the range of God's effective will. I would venture, at least from what I grew up with, um, I would venture to say this gospel message is much more expansive than what I grew up hearing. Um, like I said, I thought maybe it was, it was about the minimum entrance requirements to just get into heaven when you die, right? But when you read this, this sounds like something different. This sounds much broader than, than the, the message uh, of, you know, pie in the sky when you die, right? Like, where is this kingdom? Jesus is here. He is walking among these people, and he, is, he hasn't even died on the cross yet. And he says, the kingdom of God is near. He might have said, the rule of God is, is here, or it is near, and it is breaking in now, and it's breaking in through me. If you remember Mark Chapter 1, verse 1 starts with this bold claim that, that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah. And there were a lot of expectations that were, tie, that were tied to this vision of the Messiah. There were visions and expectations about the kingdom, that, that they knew that this Messiah was going to establish God's kingdom yet again. And, and there was this understanding that, yeah, it's going to be pretty straightforward. This king's going to come in, and basically he's going to overthrow the bad guys— and, and all of a sudden, there's going to be peace and prosperity in the land again, and he's going to overthrow our oppressors, and, and the kingdom's going to take over, and things are going to be the way that they were always supposed to be. But that's actually not what Jesus is announcing here, because he has this interesting turn of phrase where he says, the kingdom is near, or like I said, some translations will say, at hand. And most theologians um, would affirm that this this is really identifying kind of the surprising nature of God's kingdom. It's almost like this paradox where Jesus says, the kingdom is here now, but it is not fully everywhere. There's a phrase that uh, scholars love to use. Um, so if you want to repeat this and um, people will be like, wow, this, this person must really know what they're talking about. But I, I love this where he talks about the already and not yet nature of the kingdom. It's just this already, not yet. And you might think, why would I repeat that? I would just sound like a lunatic because nothing is already but not yet. But the kingdom is. It is already here, but it is not yet fully here. And, and an illustration from Dallas Willard that I find helpful, this is from his book um, called The Divine Conspiracy. And uh, it is, I think, the best book that I've read specifically on this topic of 
God's Kingdom. It's a pretty dense book, and he was a you know, lifelong professor of philosophy at USC, and so it's not uh, light uh, nighttime reading, but uh, work your way through it if you ever want to, and I would love to sit down and talk about it sometime. But Willard, he grew up in rural Missouri in the 20th century um, where there was no electricity in the part of Missouri where he grew up. And he said, soon power lines started showing up and the, and the poles were here. Electricity had come to Missouri. And he says, immediately there was a very different type of life that was available to you. Your relationship to everything, the fundamental aspects of life had changed. Day and night, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work, food, sanitation, everything had changed with electricity. And Willard says that one way to understand this is you could say, electricity has come near. Electricity is at hand, right? It, It is now accessible, but you still have to believe in electricity and in its benefits. And you still have to take practical steps to rely on it and to use it in your daily life. And the good news is like that. The kingdom of God is present and is available now, not just one day when you die, but it begins now and it continues on for eternity. And and we believe that that it will be on earth, just like the Lord's Prayer says, on earth as it is in heaven. That, That heaven is not something that awaits us at death, but is something that is beginning to infiltrate our world here and now. Even if it's not going to be fully and perfectly established until Jesus returns one day. So that maybe kind of head up in the clouds a little bit. Okay, the kingdom is already, but not yet here. Okay, with some definitions, but what does this mean? Practically speaking, like, what is it, what difference does it make to say the kingdom is already here, but not yet fully here? And and I think it means this. As we come to faith in Jesus— The healing and the renewing power of God's kingdom, it begins to infiltrate our lives, and it begins to do that more and more, that slowly we are transformed. And this transformation is not just for our own enjoyment and peace of mind, but it's then that we become agents who facilitate that kingdom in the world, that we are, are put to right by God so that we can be his putting to rights people here on earth. And to understand how this works is we actually need to look all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the first book of Genesis, Genesis chapter one and two. You see a picture of this world, perfect without sin. And we are to understand this as this is what God's kingdom looks like when it's fully being implemented, right? This is Eden, But in Genesis chapter 3, we read about uh, the fall. Sin enters that world through Adam and Eve, and that perfect kingdom is destroyed forever. Why is that? Well, because sin is when we become self-centered and not God-centered, where we have chosen to serve ourselves and to not serve God. Another way to see it is that we have chosen to be the king of our own little kingdom. I mean, think about it like the solar system, right? There is harmony in the Milky Way galaxy when all of the planets agree on its center, right? Planets aren't colliding when they're revolving, orbiting around the sun. And we are currently, though, living in a world where there are billions of people that do not share the same center, like billions of planets revolving around billions of different suns, right? What would, what would the results be? It would be complete disintegration, But that is what the Bible says that sin does. It 
touches everything. Everything falls apart, physically, socially, spiritually, psychologically. See, sin isn't this vague idea of disobedience. Oh, you should have listened to dad, right? It's actually this disintegration that we see all around us in very tangible ways. Whether it's the greed and corruption that we see in the news and businesses, whether it's the exploitation of the poor and, and resulting in human trafficking at times, and whether it's the polluted rivers and the broken families and distorted and broken sexuality and addiction and disease and mental disorders, like you could go on and on and on. This is all a result of the disintegration caused by sin. And the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of the king who begins to put everything back in order. See, the kingdom is this good news story because it's going to bring this healing and this this, uh, restoration that we so deeply need and we all long for. The love and the unity and the peace and the justice and the joy and and the health, the stuff that that it just seems like such a far-off dream at times, right? No more environmental disasters, no more racism and and political, uh, hateful political rhetoric, no more wars and pandemics or or infamous mugshots, right? Like, oh, Jesus, please come back. And I think it's important to acknowledge this, uh, this picture that Christianity believes that history is moving towards is is good news that a lot of people would agree on. That we would see this, we would say, yeah, even agnostics and atheists and other religions would say, this is the end that I would love to see. I love how um, there's this Australian pastor and this author named Mark Sayers, and he puts it this way. And he says, in our world today, the message of the kingdom of God is actually very popular. But there is a big difference because people, very often, they want the kingdom, but not the king. They want to see what Jesus promises to bring, but they don't want a king who asks for our loyalty or our obedience or our submission to his way of doing things. So what happens is that there's this inevitable clash of kingdoms because every king will ask for your allegiance, right? Which king will you serve? We, my family, we are experiencing this daily in our household. There's the kingdom of Alex and Andrew, and then there's the kingdom of Gus and Ari. And both of these kingdoms are, have laid claim to 903 North Edgefield Avenue, right? And these kingdoms have a very different view of human flourishing and very different view of bedtime, snack time, screen time, play time, how we spend our money, right? You get it. There's a clash of kingdoms always happening in our household. And I, I joke about that, but it is true to the nature of God's kingdom. Remember, Mark, in his opening line, as he's saying this phrase, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, right? And he's, he's setting up this inevitable showdown with the emperor Caesar. You know, the gospel of Caesar uh, compared, contrasted with the gospel of Jesus. And, and, and I think what he's setting up in that is to see that, that God's kingdom, it, it, it runs into our own personal kingdoms. It runs into these spaces where we want to retain control. Like power and wealth. Think about this, the the way that Jesus speaks um, in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous message in Matthew 6. And to think about kingdoms when you hear Jesus say this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and uh, and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And specifically, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Clash of kingdoms there that he's, he's acknowledging. So who do we pledge our allegiance to? 
And that takes us to the, the third and last um, question that comes from this text. How do we respond to the king of this kingdom? So verse 15, it says, um, if you have it in front of you, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. When he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. In other words, we must put aside our own self-centered way of living and to come under the authority of Jesus. Repent is a lot more than saying, I'm sorry, like I, I repent to Alex when I say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll clean the kitchen. And then like 30 minutes of soccer highlights later, I still haven't touched it. It's not just that. The word repent in the Bible means to change your mind and to turn around, right? So there, there's some self-examination that's happening. Like we, we use our, our mind, our intellect to perceive God's kingdom, to, to look at it, to think about it, and then prayerfully think, how might I be living out of step with that kingdom? Am I serving another king is a question that we might ask. And then if we find those, those places of conflict, we repent. We, we turn around. We think differently. We think differently about something, whether it's your, your finances or your job or your relationships or your politics, or maybe it's your sinful habits or this spiritual hardness or stubbornness that you have. It could be anything. And then we, we work. There is some effort here that we work to come into alignment with how God's kingdom would rule in this part of my life. And I think it's really telling here that Jesus says that his kingdom is received through repentance. To be a part of this kingdom, that it is not an invitation to pick up your sword and fight or click the donate button or, you know, use this banner or this hashtag on your social media page, right? It is a call to repent, showing us just how much God's kingdom is about submitting to his way of life. And I think it's worth acknowledging here that that word submission maybe is triggering. Um, I think to say you can't live certain ways or pursue certain things is like the modern definition of oppression, right? To say, to, to be intolerant and, and so um, constructive to a way of life. But, but the paradox is that submission to God's kingdom actually isn't oppressive, but it brings us freedom, Right? Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. That's the modern understanding of freedom. True freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. True freedom comes from the guardrails that guide us into the type of life that we were made for. And that's the good news of God's kingdom, that his kingdom brings life, whereas serving ourselves brings death. There's a great line um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where he says famously, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So we repent, and verse 15, we believe. The call to believe is it's more than just this one-time act. Often we think of, oh, believe, like I put my faith in Jesus, I believe that he was God and he died for my sins, and now I'm a Christian, right? But the verb tense of these words, repent and believe, show that these are actions repeated over and over. So belief is actually trusting and believing in Jesus every single day. Like, yes, we believe in him and who he is, but also believe him. Like, he's a trustworthy source, Believe him when he says that I will provide for you. I will never leave you. I, I will guide you. I will forgive you that my grace is enough for you. Actually, believe him. I have heard this said before. And I like this um, Im image here where it, um, somebody said that it's like pedals on a bicycle. 
Repentance and belief. Repentance and belief over and over. And if our life is following Jesus, uh, if it's like this bicycle, repentance and belief are these ongoing acts that move us forward. And this cycle, I think, is what Jesus is inviting us to here. Look at the kingdom, right? Observe, perceive the kingdom, assess, make, make some, some honest inventory about where our lives are in line and out of line with that kingdom, and then repent and believe, right? Believe that I, I will say no to this, but his way is better, right? Trusting him, that's a lot of trust. If, if I just said, okay, the end today, you would understandably be confused because it seems like there's some mixed messages that I'm sending. If you are catching this, that I started the sermon saying this gospel message is not about doing stuff, right? It's about what has been done for you. But then I say, here's all the stuff that you have to do though, right? Repent and believe and, and, and perceive the kingdom. And, and it can sound exhausting, this like never-ending potential of Okay, well, is this in line with the kingdom? Is that out of line? What about this? What about that? Like, that could be a bit paralyzing, okay? What comes next in the text, I think, gives us some context, and it reminds us that Christianity is not moralism and rule following, but it is about a life with Jesus. So let me read in verse 16. Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Sketchy, I think. Um, And they left them with the hired men. Okay, didn't leave them alone. And they followed him. Right? Just look at that, that immediate, that urgency of that response of Jesus. And, and it just, it's just such an interesting, compelling picture. It makes me wonder, like, what was it about Jesus that people would just do that so quickly? But we see here the, the, appropriate, the appropriate response of the good news of this kingdom is repent and believe. But here we actually get a picture of what that looks like. Jesus doesn't give people a list of moral uh, commandments like homework to go work on this on your own, right? He invites them into a life with him. He invites them in with these simple words, follow me. I find this incredibly comforting, and hopefully you do too. It's like Jesus is saying, follow me. Yes, repent, believe, and it will be hard, and it could feel unnatural, but I will be with you. Watch me, learn from me, practice alongside me, and I will help you grow. I will, I will give you a community of people. I, I like the, the translation, another translation says that I will make you become fishers of men. It's like this picture of like not overnight trans, transformation, but this ongoing development, right? Christianity is not the Quaker instant stuff. It's the steel cut overnight oats that are not for the impatient, Again, from C.S. Lewis, I really like this imagery here. He says, the real son of God, excuse me, the real son of God is at your side. And he is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning to inject his kind of life and thought into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. And the part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin I think the presence of Jesus with us on this spiritual journey makes all the difference. 
And the king of, of this kingdom, he himself is with us, working the way of his kingdom into our lives, first into us and then out of us into the world. And the king of this kingdom, I, I think we call this good news because this king is unlike any other king the world has ever seen. I mean, think about it, an invading kingdom, right? A coming kingdom with a different king is not necessarily good news. It might uh, lead to war or oppression. But here, we call it good news because of this king. Because if you think about it, this king, he lacks nothing. He has nothing to, to prove. There's no hunger for power. There's no lust for the flesh here. There is no thirst for riches. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus had everything, and yet he gave that all up out of his love for us. This is what Philippians chapter 2 describes so powerfully. Let me just read a section of this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, even becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this king, he lacked nothing he lacks nothing, which is why it is so amazing when we step back and we see that God will exalt him. He will return in glory one day, but the path to that glory was through the grave. And that is what we meditate on when we come to this table here today. As we eat this bread and as we drink from this cup, we are tangibly, even just symbolically, like ingesting this message that this is the type of king that we serve. This is one that loves you so much that he did not rule in a high and lofty throne, but one who came to live among us and to die a death on the cross and to be raised by, G by God. So come to think about that, meditate on that as you come up. What is the type of king that rules this kingdom?